This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler, and we are talking Mule Deer from the North American Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference here in Denver, Colorado. And I'm Steve Belinda, and joining us now are two gentlemen from the Non-Lead Partnership, Leland Brown from the Oregon Zoo and Chris Parrish from the Peregrine Fund. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us. What is the Non-Lead Partnership? <laughs> yeah, and why did we have to have one? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I, it's a... We're basically a, a, a partnership of um, state agencies, hunting groups, conservation groups like, like our own, like the ones we work with. Um, but the need came about to better be able to represent ourselves as we're hunter conservationists. And that's not uncommon for a lot of people. But when you start talking about things as contentious as lead versus non-lead, um, we, we quickly found that we couldn't just do this ourselves in our own little regions and our own small programs to talk about the effects of lead and the landscape and how we can ameliorate that. So we had to form up. And so uh, myself at the Peregrine Fund and and Leland at Oregon Zoo, uh, among a few others, we decided to, to uh, form this group, call it the North American Non-Lead Partnership, and our two main functions, or our main tenets, are to preserve our wildlife conservation and hunting heritage, both at the same time. So it's pulling back to that lead is a toxic substance mm -hmm. that is used in a lot of shot and ammunition that can cause issues when it's introduced to the environment. Yeah, and the big thing for us is we really want to make sure that hunters are aware that they have a choice, and that choice can benefit both hunting and conservation of other creatures on the landscape. We care a lot about caring for the animals that we harvest, and we also care about taking care of the entire ecosystem. So, um, and being aware of what options are available is really important. Yeah, so so let's just back it up a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's a huge issue, and probably people are aware of, of some of the challenges. Contentious issues, And too. contentious, totally. and, under, yeah. and, and recognizably. But you've got, you've got some tactics that you guys have used. But, but let's go back a little bit about the use of lead as ammunition for hunting projectiles mm -hmm. and the impact uh, that it has either environmentally or on other species. Can you just give us an example or, or explain that a little bit better? Start? Yeah, so very quickly, I mean, we've known about weight retention for our ammunition for a very long time, but we rarely think about where the weight loss actually ends up. Um, and on impact, a lead bullet tends to shed weight. It strips off the front end of the bullet as it expands and ends up staying behind in the animal. And we do our best to cut that out so we don't bring it home. Um, and unfortunately, it also gets left behind in the field in the remains. And that's a food source for lots of different species. Um, eagles, uh, Budios, other, uh, you know, vultures, like to use that food source. The big and one's probably California condor that a lot of folks know. Well, yeah. and, and that's right there as soon as you say that ESA, that endangered species, and you say the California condor, immediately, I know your listeners, the flags are going up right now. Yeah. And the importance of condors, and, and I have a lot of experience with that. I've managed the condor program for a good long while, so some people may turn it off now and decide not <laughs> to listen. But I'm also, I've, I've been a hunter before, and I'm still a hunter. But the importance of what we learned with condors is we studied a scavenging species at an individual level. 
we studied those birds individually. So we can tell you what their blood lead levels were annually. Right. And so the data we've gleaned from that gave us the insights for what's going on in the rest of the, the landscape. And so to, to be very clear um, from the introduction there, it's not about just lead in the landscape. It's lead that, w that we, in essence, put into the food chain. That's what we're concerned with. We're not concerned with shooting at the range with the other ammunition we have. We're concerned with, with if you shoot an animal with lead-based ammunition, and this is also dispatching, uh, if you're dispatching uh, uh, domestic stock, something like that, it, it doesn't matter. If you shoot an animal with lead-based ammunition whose remains are going to be left in the landscape, now it's available to scavengers. Well, you know, I have kids, so I, this is on the issue about lead into their bodies and how that affects I've licked enough lead paint growing up in a, you know, early 70s That's hats. the problem. <laughs> now <laughs> I understand. But as you said, the alternatives that are out there. I yeah, mean, I remember it. when the Condor zone and the, the requirement to use non-lead, it was big. But you talk to folks now, Arizona, Nevada, California, and it's they, they have basically some of those worries have been alleviated because of the alternatives that are out there and the ballistics that are in the bullets – other material industry is yeah. making some very outstanding options here so yep. so that your experience with condor uh program arizona implemented a voluntary lead exchange um Tell us a little bit about that yeah. program and how that was successful. And, and this is this is important for people to know. You know, the, we were the group working in the Condors in Arizona, the Peregrine Fund, and our partners were Arizona Game and Fish. And so when we started identifying this seasonality, the seasonal exposure, and really high levels of exposure, and seeing that we had lead cause mortality, which are number one cause of mortality in that population, first thing we did is test ammunition to find out how it fragments. So we did a, a fragmentation study where we shot deer, x-rayed them whole, x-rayed the gut piles, all those different things. We took those data to the Arizona Game and Fish Department and said, can you help us share this information with your hunters, our fellow hunters, so that they can see this so we can ask if we'll if they would consider using non-lead ammunition. So Arizona Game and Fish surveyed the hunters and the ranching communities, then gave them all of the, the information that we had gleaned from our scientific studies, and then asked them for their voluntary participation. And they incentivized it by offering free non-lead ammunition if you were lucky enough to draw a tag on the Kaibab Plateau. And I'm extremely excited to, to talk about this any time we can. We started with 50% participation. Then the next year was 60. Next year was 70. The next year was 80. And we've been at 87% annual voluntary participation in that program by Arizona deer hunters to help ameliorate that risk voluntarily. You sound That's excited. for 11 years. When he, did you notice that he must have gotten one of those strip tags? No, no. And, <laughs> and here's what I always say. I mean, I've known Miles for a lot of years and been. I worked for Game and Fish in Arizona before and uh, I've had one tag, one tag and it was an early tag. It wasn't that coveted late tag. Yeah. And I made the joke yesterday in a lead and wildlife committee meeting. I said, yeah, if you're lucky enough to get drawn, they'll also give you a box of bullets, but you never get drawn. So, yeah. Well, probably the <coughs> the issue with lead from from hunter shotgunners, the one that was on most radar, really too, waterfowl and dove hunting. Waterfowl, it was over. Tw is it thirty years now that we had Ni switched? Nineteen ninety one. Ninety one. That yeah. we had to switch to use non toxic shot, mostly steel for waterfowl because of some of the implications of hunting waterfowl in the same spot with 
you know, Ducks then picking it up. And, you know, and of course, in I think it's some of the upper Midwest states, they're still having arguments over dove shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us how that is evolved. Is it, is it still widely accepted? I mean, I still hear people that, you know, oh, yeah, that's that's bogus, you know. But <laughs> You know, you you hear that. I think most, most people have kind of accepted that, you know, the use of non-toxic shot for waterfowl has Im- been an improvement. Um, not necessarily, you know, for the individual hunter sometimes they have some complaints about performance but you know technology again industry has really made massive changes and technological advances that have improved ammunition Um, it's a well understood pathway because of there was a hundred years of research behind that before that regulation went into effect the ammunition for rifle hunting was also where they started making you know the barnes bullets in the 80s um, so they started making the bullets prior to any of those regulations. So they've got a long time in advancing that technology as well. Yeah, and so um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Barnes, that's a copper bullet. It's an all-copper yeah. bullet. So they were kind of the original, and now we have, you know, Nosler and Federal and Hornady and all these other Almost companies all of them making have great quality. ammunition. Besides I, copper, what else are they using in the non-toxic world? You know, for rifle ammunition, that's really the choice. Yeah. It seems to match with density, malleability for expansion, and keep the cost at the same level as other good quality ammunition. Um, you know, you can get to to you know more budget-friendly lead bullets, um, but now we're seeing folks like Federal make their power shot copper bullets, which yeah. are right there at the same same price as their other blue box stuff, and they work really well. What about in the shotgunning world? So in the shotgunning world, you're you know you're looking at steel, bismuth, and tungsten basically. Um, those are your choices there. You don't have the concerns about expansion, so you you don't have to work with malleability as much. Um, so th- those are the ones. Steel's most cost effective. Bismuth is next and works well with older shotguns that can't take steel or tungsten. And tungsten's you know probably the you know it improves performance over lead because of density. But you know same thing as as steel. It's a little bit harder so you have to be aware of what shotgun you're you're using it in well i know i shoot steel when i uh, i've still got a lot of lead ammo but i shoot when i hunt i shoot steel Mm -hmm. you know and it might be cheaper but when you think about biting into that steel pellet and cracking a tooth i think it plays out oh it's not good (laughs) man yeah (laughs) it's not good well and 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 steve you mentioned the um the human health concern or question and that is continues i mean it, it may not if, you, if you're making choices about things that you can do and not licking lead paint like you <laughs> did, apparently. Well, uh, I had older brothers that were probably holding They probably the held their head against the wall. The wall. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, but there, there are increasing options. And, and think about if you've got a fragment, a leg fragment that goes through your grinder. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of pictures of that as people have been <laughs> yeah. putting up their meat this year. That then gets into a much yeah. broader amount of, I mean, it's not just that individual piece where you shot the animal where that lead ends up. Um, those fragments go a long way. Yeah, and I, you know, I would like to be very clear. We are not telling people that you're poisoning yourselves with your ammunition. Right. Um, is, is there some potential for you getting it at home? Sure. Of course. We understand that. Um, there's, you know, there's some evidence out there that's looked at exposure and shown that, yeah, you can be getting some, but we don't want to say, you know, we're not trying to tell people you're poisoning your family. That's not, yeah, this is not an alarmist message. This is, this is when we show the fragmentation x-rays, uh, in the, in the carcass itself, you can see the, the wheels turning. And what we're clear to, to present is this is your decision. Yeah. But you need the information in order to make a well-informed decision. 
that is the and key. the well-informed decision with <coughs> options that they yes. we didn't yeah. used to have. I think that was more the point I'm taking is is right. if you're if you're concerned, then there are options for you, you and there yeah, you are opportunities that, that that you can use. Yeah, thirty years ago, you know, there really wasn't a choice. I mean, if you wanted to go hunt, you were using lead bullets. But yeah. now with the Federal's copper bullets are great. They work. <laughs> great. Hey, I love them. I, I shoot yeah. barns. I. And I I reload. I shoot the the TTX. So yeah. TTSX. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I shot a nice little mule deer this year with the Barnes. Work great. You know, yeah. I mean, they they're very effective. My background is as invasive species removal. I used to shoot pigs and goats and yeah, he's all one of those of guys. Stuff. He, got on. The, uh, he got one of those I, jobs. Yeah. I have used non-lead for the vast majority of that, and I, the, it is extremely effective. Um, and that's the biggest thing where where we think the partnership really is helpful is we can we can be there to help people understand how to best use this this newer am ammunition that they may not be as familiar with. Um, it's really not that different, but same as anything. You need to try different brands, different weights in your rifle to find what's most effective. Yeah. So in Oregon, we're running an all-voluntary program. We're working, we're building into an incentive program that's going statewide. And part of that is bringing ammunition to the range for people to try so that they don't have to invest the money in buying several different boxes to test. They can test it on us, and then if they choose to use it, then they go buy what they know works in their particular rifle. Well, and, and having spent some time in the reloading aisles, it powder's probably more of a limiting factor. And primers. I mean, remember yeah. in oh, primers? Yeah. People were stockpiling <laughs> primers. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, so, I mean, I, mean I'm, I want folks to understand this. The, the Mule Deer Foundation as an organization would not be part of this partnership if it was all those things that you mentioned that you aren't. Yeah. It is about choice. It's That's about right. informed choice, and it's about us being able to maintain partnerships with. In the in this case, you got a zoo and a peregrine fund. Yeah, right. I mean, let's face it. Most folks would say, "Oh, they're anti-hunting," yeah. but here you're telling us <laughs> stories about the things that you guys do and you've done. And of yeah. course, I know a little bit about the peregrine fund. I've got many members on my board at the North American Grouse Partnership, and they're yeah. all hunters. And you know, let's face it, falcon is hunt falconry is hunting Absolutely. too. Oh man, it's yeah. just not using that's non-lead. <laughs> <laughs> that's non-lead uh, hunting yeah. at the start. Just aside, um, <laughs> and and Ralph Rogers, who you know, told Absolutely. me he said, "Listen." falconry is you have to hunt with the bird to be considered a falconer that's right you can't just raise them and fly them you actually have to go out and try to take animals with them before that that i guess organization or that uh profession will say that you're a falconer so. right well and imagine the falconer so let's let's take that for a minute imagine the falconer is out there with their bird they have to exercise that bird every day yeah. that bird has to go out there and, and either do the activities that normal hunting would in, would incur or actually hunt. Imagine the falconer who, <clears throat> and this has happened, and even within the falconry community, you'd think they'd be fairly up on this information about the effects of lead and whatnot, but you're hunting for food sometimes with a pellet rifle or with a 22 rimfire or something like that, and you're hunting for squirrels or you're hunting pigeons or whatever, and then you're feeding that to your bird. And the next thing you know, your bird gets sick. Yeah. And they say, well, what in the world happened? And finally, somebody, this is in the 60s, a couple of these first instances that were actually published, they said, well, well, what are you feeding your bird? Feeding it this. And what are you shooting it with? Shooting it with this. And they look at x-rays and they're like, that bird's lead poison. They test its blood lead level and they say, 
I, how did I, how would I have known this otherwise? That is the most common response we get when we talk to hunters is I had no idea. I thought this was an attack on our rights to get our guns, to, to eliminate hunting. And when they see those x-rays, they say, wow, I'll, I'll consider this. And again, it's for those animals that we're harvesting in the field whose remains are left there. That's a small, small percentage of what we do. Unless, of course, you're a varmint hunter, and then it's a little more costly to make that switch. But you can also remove the remains of those carcasses from the field if they're smaller, and that way they're not a part of the food chain. So this type of conversation, this type of information is what gives people the ability to make more informed decisions, and it also helps to navigate the politics of this issue, which have gotten really nasty in the yeah. last decade. Well, you know, I think there's not a wildlife <coughs> professional out there that hasn't been exposed to the, the lead issue. Yeah. And one of the things that always happens when I pay a little bit more attention to this issue is, the shooters go, the, the people that shoot 10,000 rounds a month yeah. are the ones that really don't understand you're not advocating for them to switch. You're saying, hey, if you're at the range or you're at the, the five stand or the skeet, you know, and you're, and you're doing it there, we're not, we're not saying change. Yeah. What we're saying is, is when you're going to go out and leave that residual impact right. so that, you know, make the choice. And it's your choice. We're not, I mean. It is, it is now. As long oh, as well, we show yeah. responsibility. That's exactly yeah. the point I was going to make. None of us really want, none of us like to be regulated, right? Yeah. We, oh, if, no. But at the same time, there are conscious choice and volunteer choice that you can make along the way that, that may hopefully prelude, preclude the need for regulation. Yeah, we, you know, we have to remember that hunting is under more and more scrutiny. And there's been surveys that look at how the public supports hunting. They support responsible use. They, you know, they care about people taking home the meat, all these pieces. Unfortunately, if, if they're seeing this message that, you know, we're having impacts we don't want on accident, and then they hear, oh, well, we don't really care about that, then that <laughs> degrades their support of hunting. So for us, this is a really important pathway that each person can look at and decide what their choice is that both helps wildlife but really that protecting hunting heritage is a really critical part for us. So the partnership has got how many members? And give us a few examples of folks who might shock folks, either on the hunting side or maybe on the enviro side, who are part of it, who are trying to work together on this issue. Yeah, well, the big thing right now is, uh, you know, we just launched the partnership last end of last June. So it's been a little over six months now. We currently have 13 partners in 14, 14 now we, we got, added a new one we yesterday. got a new one yesterday sorry yeah so um yeah. for oregon um you know we have odfw on board there they really want to see this information getting out in order to help them educate their hunters share the information and hopefully avoid regulatory approaches and on the other side we've got oregon hunters association who have been working with for several years and in december they decided that this was an appropriate partnership for them that fulfills their mission of, of taking care of wildlife and, con, you know, preserving hunting in the state of Oregon. Great. And in Arizona, we have, um, of course, we have the Arizona Game and Fish, Utah Division of Natural Resources, but the ones that probably people would be more surprised at, we have Arizona Elk Society, Arizona Deer Association, Arizona Mule Deer Group. We have the Arizona, uh, we just got the Antelope Foundation on more recently. And when you said the Enviro groups on the other side, We've avoided that. Oh, really? Specifically. Okay. And we've had to tell some rather large groups that are very involved in this lead issue who would really like to support us. We've had to say, not yet, guys, because we need, our, our focus is hunting groups and agencies. The reason being, wow. those are the ones who work directly with the target audience, which is us hunters. And so, um, 
Yeah. But they, but they're showing interest to join. Oh, they they want yeah. to join. They're yeah. ready. And yeah. and you know what's beautiful about this is we've earned enough, I think, of a reputation that now they're patiently waiting to assist yeah. when it, the time is right. But if we had some of those groups, I won't say their names oh, on here. We, we deal with that all the time. <clears throat> yeah, if we had all those groups here on this partnership and then the hunters were to look a little deep, more deeply into this and say, should I be involved in this? And they see, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's not Well, gonna, that's smart. I yeah. mean, what you guys are doing is <clears throat> smart. It's needed. Again, it's, it's voluntary. It's a choice. You're, that's you're right. getting information out there. You're working with the right folks. Working with the, you should start with the state agencies on these issues because everyone's got to manage- buy a license. Well, that's who yeah. manages wildlife. Yeah. yeah, you know, and so it's it's um, I guess it's a a bit disappointing that these are the stakes of the game these days that you can't just have everybody that wants to. But you mentioned something earlier that that I want to fall back to. There are some groups out there who sound like they are doing, for example, condor recovery, yeah. who would who would have you believe that, that will use that to push for regulation. Right. And so to differentiate our partnership between those folks is a constant struggle. And so some of this partnership as well is, is not just providing that information, it's also providing help in navigating the politics of this issue. So in some ways, we as a growing partnership can now insulate some of these other groups against that and support one another in saying, no, 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 we, we, we state every time we have a conversation with, with folks, we do not support litigation or legislation to solve this problem. This is an information problem, and we've seen through the small programs like that in Arizona and beginning in, in Oregon, that when you provide information and you ask for hunter support and conservation, you almost always get it. So what's next? What do you guys got on the horizon for 2019 and beyond? Another busy uh, year. A busy year, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so we've been working closely with a lot of a lot of groups trying to build support, trying to get them to understand what we are able to offer. So, you know, we'll be going to the International Hunter Education Association. Um, they've got their conference in Alabama this year just to go share information with uh, with our hunter instructors, make sure that they're able to answer questions as they come up in their classes. Yeah, um, that'll be our third year in a row. That'll be our third year in a row. We were in Oregon when they had it there. We were up in Alaska last year, and then this will be our third year. We're going up to the Northeast Offo meeting in order to, to share this information with state agencies up there. Make sure that they know that there's people out there that can be there to help them. If you know, there's a lot of pressure out there. Make sure that the agencies are doing something, and we think this is the best way. Hunters leading the way in this issue. Is really going to be critical yeah would you add some more to that chris yeah i think um i'm going to a raptor festival so i guess that points out another another need we see as much as we need to share the information with our hunting brethren we also do have to continue to talk to the enviro groups and make sure that we're telling them hey something is happening and this may be a new paradigm and a new way of doing business but if you're patient and and you learn how to talk to hunters we can help you with that right because sometimes it's just the language I hear the language that comes from these campaigns. I'm like, that's never going to work, <laughs> you know. And and okay, I'm a redneck biologist and and a hunter and all that, so that makes it a little easier for me to spot it. But um, we can help there too. So I think there's two different two different camps there that we can work in. And we're not trying to you know make the world uh, come to peace and the lion lay with the lamb, but we are trying to occupy that middle ground. Where can we find out more information about the partnership? Our website is still under construction, but it is in there in in, uh, in raw form now, and it's nonleadpartnership.org. And then Oregon Zoo. Oregon <laughs> Zoo has a page on their website with some information. Um, you can get a hold of me at the Oregon Zoo. Um, and then also, 
you know, huntingwithnonlead.org is a, a really one. important uh, place to get more information about both the science and what options are available to That's us. That's probably the best resource right now, not picking on Leland or the Zoo <laughs> we or just, the Peregrine Fund. We just back to but, hunting with nonlead. But it's, it's nice because you don't, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm a hunter. I want to learn about hunting with nonlead ammunition, and I'm going to go to the Peregrine Fund's website. That, that's not a logical course. So huntingwithnonlead.org is probably the best, and we'll link to those two and our partners. If you go to Arizona Game and Fish's webpage, they have a ton of information, science, publications, all that stuff. Thank you for your time today, Leland and Chris. We appreciate it. It's, it is a, it's a challenging issue. I mean, it's a philosophical life change for a lot of people, oh. but there's, there's important things, and to be able to gather more information and have uh, informed people telling them about it is, allows you to make that choice. That's what makes America great, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Ah. Well, gentlemen, thank you. Keep up the good work, and thank you for talking mule deer. You bet. Thank, thank you. you, guys. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.